Once you get that Bible out, open to the book of James. I am very proud to announce this morning that this past Wednesday, Kathy and I celebrated 26 years of marriage together. It's, it's a long time to put up with something like this, all right? This is a hot mess up here. So please give Kathy a round of applause for just being a woman of wisdom and patience and grace. I once heard a, a pastor tell a story about he was driving around with his wife and they, were, they pulled up to a 7-Eleven and there was a man out in front of the 7-Eleven who was clearly not in a good place in his life. He was on drugs, he was drunk, he, was look, he looked out of sorts and the pastor started feeling really good about himself and started talking to his wife about everything he had accomplished. And you know, we've traveled the world, I've preached to presidents and senators and I'm the pastor of the largest church in the state of Maryland. And he turned to his wife and he said, aren't you glad that you married me instead of that loser? And his wife turned to him and said, if I had married him, he would be the pastor of the largest church in the state of Maryland, <laughs> which is probably pretty true. <laughs> On Wednesday, Kathy and I went out to our favorite swim hole and we laid on an air mattress in the middle of a, of a lake and we held hands and we just looked into each other's eyes. And I reflected back on an amazing, amazing years with her. And I thought about, man, she brings out the best in me. I hope I bring out the best in her. She puts up with so much. She's, she's so wise, she's so gracious. I thought it was interesting. I thought as we, were, as we were spending the day together, I thought she has seen the worst parts of me. Like, isn't that interesting? In the relationships that are the most intimate, where you are the most close, isn't it interesting how that tends to be the relationship where people see your worst, your darkest? Isn't it interesting that in the relationships where there's the most intimacy and, and where there should be the most love, those tend to be the relationships where there's the most conflict, I look back on 26 years of incredible, wonderful romance and great conversations, but also a lot of conflict, immense conflict. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that in the relationships, like think about relationships in the church where we share the most in common, those tend to be the relationships where we can have the most conflict and fighting and bickering and, and division. And how about you? Have you ever thought about your own life and thought like, why, why is it that I tend to have so much conflict in my relationships? Do you have any conflict right now in your life? In, any conflict? <laughs> or does this totally not apply to you? Have you been hiding under a rock for the last 15 months, right? There's conflict. Are you stuck in a relationship where there, there seems to be this never ending spiral of conflict? A relationship where you want intimacy, but for some reason, there's always bickering and fighting. Maybe that's with a spouse or a roommate, maybe with your family, your siblings. Do you find that you have to avoid certain conversations because you know the second that conversation comes up, it's just, there's just gonna be a massive fight, right? And then have you ever asked this question, well, well let's get underneath the surface. Like, why does this even happen in our in our world. And what if I were to tell you that there's an entire paragraph in the New Testament devoted to why people 
fight. Did you know that? <laughs> and did you know that it's one of the most profound? You could read a hundred self-help books on conflict and they won't even scratch the wisdom of the paragraph we're about to read together. Would you like some help? I know I would. I know I would. So what if we spent the morning diving deep into this passage? And I promise you, this passage is gonna change your life. Will you look at it with me? James 4 is where we go. And our text this morning is verses one through seven. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now put your finger there and let me just say, James is using murder in a proverbial, he's not speaking literally, he's probably talking about the kind of rage or anger that can break out even in a church family where you might not actually be physically harmed somebody, but you want to, right? He says, why do you murder? You, you, you murder because you, you, you desire and you can't have it. You covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Or you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. The word of the Lord. I love this passage and if you're paying attention, you can already tell there's a lot going on here. Now, what we're doing in our study in James, we're not necessarily preaching every verse. We're taking big themes. I've got a slide that I showed you in series one, uh, sermon one, where our, our theme is James, this portrait of living faith. He's talking about encouraging the church to live out faith in a way that will transform the world. And he does that by tackling different subjects. And we've tackled a lot of great ones Tongue, the tongue and works and wisdom. And the word this week is the, world, is the word worldliness. It's a little hard to pick one word to capture that whole paragraph. We're gonna go with worldliness and I'm gonna show you where that comes from in a moment. But where James begins, he begins with conflict in verse one. Will you look at it again in your Bible? That's where he starts. It's such, a, it's such a practical question. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? He's writing to a church family. And what's really interesting is that rather than James saying, here's the answer, you'll notice what he does next. He, he, he answers his first question with more questions, which tells you something. James says, and not only just more questions, they're questions that encourage the reader rather than looking out there to find the answer. Why is there quarreling? The questions actually encourage the reader to turn inward and look in here, which is not what we normally do, all right? When we think about conflict in our lives and something blows up in my relationship, what do I immediately do? I find the, I find the cause out there. 
right? You hear it all the time. Oh, he makes me so angry, right? Or, oh, when she talks to me like that, my blood begins to boil. Or I cannot believe how ignorant those people are. I cannot believe how insensitive he is. I cannot believe how self-centered she is. And that's how we typically respond to conflict. The problem's out there. But James does something absolutely fascinating. James says, in order to answer the question, what causes conflict? The first place you need to look is in here. You need to look inside. And you say, well, why would James believe that? And my answer is because I think that James understood the true reality of the gospel. James was a gospel man. And so what I wanna do is I wanna give you a principle, the first of three. And I am gonna ask you to write these down because you're gonna, you're gonna need to take these and think about them. So here's the very first principle I wanna share with you. It goes like this. If the gospel is true, then the first cause of my conflict is always my own sin. I start there, always. And, and the reason, I don't just start there without a reason. I start there because I believe the gospel. You say, pastor, I, I'm not following your logic. Well, it's simple. The murder, torture, humiliation, suffering, betrayal of the son of the living God is so gruesome and so radical that if he did not come to earth to die for a reason, to die for something really serious, that death, that torture, that humiliation, that betrayal becomes completely nonsensical, right? But we know that he did die for something. It was something big. It was something profound. It was something that resides in every one of us. And so we say, because the gospel is true, I know, I know. I get into a situation where there's conflict. I can know immediately the, first, the, the most likely, the first cause of this is in here. Now, folks, it takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of wisdom to live with this principle. Amen? This is really hard. In fact, let me make an observation. I've, I've used this principle a lot in my ministry and I've noticed something when I use this principle, whether it's, on a Sunday morning or in, in a marriage counseling session, people have a really hard time embracing that principle. They don't struggle with it intellectually and they don't even struggle with it at a concept level. They think, oh yeah, that's absolutely true. Where, where, where people start to have a problem is actually applying that principle to themselves. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I remember sitting with a couple who had been fighting and we went to James 4 and we read the whole passage and I said, here's the principle. If the gospel is true, my conflict, the first cause is always my own sin. And I was talking about this with the couple and the wife just began smiling. And she said to me, I am so thankful you are saying that to him. <laughs> and I'm thinking, actually, I was saying that to you <laughs> and him. Amen. 
Amen. It's so easy to apply that out there, but that's the whole point. The principle only makes sense if by God's grace, I have the humility and the wisdom to turn it inside. My first problem and often my biggest problem is not my circumstances, not where I was born, not my childhood, not my parenting, not my Enneagram number. Not, you know, I've heard parents now when they're parenting their children excuse away their behavior. Well, you know, he's an eight. He's a challenger. No, I've got another word for him. But anyway, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things I could explain away my problems with. And the gospel gives me the wisdom to say, wait a minute, before I go to any of those things, I need to go somewhere else first. I need to go in here. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, he said, what comes out of your mouth just flows from the abundance of your heart, the overflow of your heart. Anything that flies out of my mouth came from somewhere. It came from the overflow of what's happening in here. This is so wise. Jesus is saying, my actions, my behavior, my words, anything that comes in and creates really harmful, destructive conflict in my life, this first source of that, I need to follow that word back into the source. So the problem is in here, in my own heart. But I want you to notice something. Look back at the end of verse one, because James is not just saying you've got a heart problem. He's, he's talking about something very specific. This is, I'm telling you, you could read a million books and you would never get this diagnosis. James says the problem is he's concerned about what he calls passions that are at war within you, okay? Now, you, you're gonna have to think with me about this because this is different, Passions that are at war. That word passions in the Greek, it just means, it means pleasures. It means desires. It doesn't necessarily mean negative desires. It often means intense desires, but some of those desires are neutral. Some of them could be good. The point is what James is describing is a situation where at any given moment, I might have multiple desires, multiple passions, multiple things that I want And I could come to a situation where those passions start battling against each other. Now, this is really, really profound. And this can change your relationships. So I want you to think about this for a minute. What is the purpose of war? The purpose of war is control. So James is saying, at any given moment, you're walking around, you're walking into interactions, you're in a relationship with someone and you have this battle happening in your heart. It's a battle of your passions and those passions are fighting. And one of those passions is gonna win the war and that whatever passion wins the war now has control of your heart. And that will begin to dictate how you behave, how you speak, what you do. Wow. I pull into my driveway after a long day of work. I pull into my driveway and I've spent the day with complex situations, complex problems, spending time with people. I'm tired, I'm ornery, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm out of gas. And when I pull into that driveway, I have a lot of desires 
in my heart in that moment. And all of you can think of an example like this in your life. There I am, I'm sitting in my driveway and, and what do I want? I wanna walk inside and I want my wife to just, she's so pretty. I just want her to give me a big hug and give me a kiss on the lips. I'll, I'll be honest. And I want her to tell me she's proud of me and words of, I'm a words of affirmation guy. I want a big hug. I want affection. I want some, some solace in my home, maybe quiet. I want animals that are not annoying, that are you know, well-behaved, right? I want to sit down and have dinner with my girls and have a really wonderful conversation about Christian theology. I have all of these desires, right? Okay. I, and, and, then, and then along with that, you know what else? I have another desire. I want to please Jesus, right? And so do you. I want to be a man of Christ, I want to be godly. I want to be humble. I want to love Kathy like Jesus loved the church. I have that desire. And in that moment where I'm sitting in my car in the driveway, right now, all those desires are still kind of getting along with each other. But that's because I haven't walked through the front door yet. <laughs> and then I walk through the door and people are screaming at each other and the, and the girls are tearing around and Winnie has gone pee in the middle of the hardwood floor and they're trying to find paper cloths to pick it up. And because my house is old and it's sloped, the pee is draining towards one corner. That's another desire. I want a house with level floors. But anyway, that's another sermon. And all this is happening and there's chaos. Now, you know what happens? All of those desires that I had, they start fighting with each other. And whichever desire wins the war takes control. And that begins to dictate what comes out of my mouth. Can you apply that in your life, in your relationships? Isn't that amazing? We don't typically think of it this way. Beneath the wars that we have with one another, James says there's another war happening. It's a war of desires. Okay, so that, I'm going to share with you a second principle. Write this down. It's similar to the first, but with a little bit deeper application. If the gospel is true, I should live with constant suspicion about my motives. But only if the gospel is true. Because the gospel, right, River West, the gospel gives us humility to be honest, to look inside with honesty. I call this gospel suspiciousness, okay? Gospel suspiciousness, That's, that matters, right? There's lots of people in the world who are suspicious, but usually when we're suspicious, we're always suspicious of things out there. And the gospel says, nope, turn it around. Turn it around. Imagine how different our relationships would be if we were constantly suspicious of our own desires. I don't mean condemning. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. I do not mean you walk around beating yourself up all the time. That is not what I'm saying. I'm, all I'm saying is a very humble, a very discerning suspiciousness. If I think I'm always right, I should start to get pretty suspicious. 
If I think I am an expert on everything that's happening in our world and I have a right to tell people my views, I should get suspicious. If I think I'm always wrong, I should get suspicious. See, one desire that's out there is this desire to constantly self-flagellate and beat myself up and I'm, I'm worthless, I'm nothing. People can walk all over me. If I, if I think I'm always wrong or I, I'm always telling people I'm wrong, I should get suspicious. If extremely strong emotions begin to bubble up in a moment of conflict with someone, I should immediately get suspicious. Wait a minute. What's going on? Think about your last big fight. That last conflict. How, how would it have turned out if immediately you went, oh, wait a minute, you feel the strong emotions and you go, let's think about this for a minute. Remember James said, be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. I'm gonna give you something really practical. <clears throat> 26 years of marriage with Kathy. After 26 years, she and I, we can tell when a conversation is about to make that turn towards something really volatile. You know what I mean by that? It's like you can kind of, it's like you smell something in the air. That's the smell of burning flesh, by the way. But you're, you're having a conversation and it starts out cordial and suddenly it's like, wait a minute, tensions are starting to flare. <laughs> it's like when you can see storm clouds on the horizon, okay? And you, and you know it. And you can even figure that out in your community group or with your mother-in-law or, or with your family, or you can tell, I think this conversation, the intensity starting to ratchet up, you should always do two things right away. And I've only learned to do this from 25 and a half years of failure, okay? Two things. Number one, start praying right there. With your eyes open, stay in the moment, start praying. And number two, get suspicious. Wait a minute. What are the chances that what's really, something's, there's an emotion that's winning the war for my heart and now it's, really impacting what I'm doing here. And James says, it's really interesting. Look at this. James says, all of this ultimately is connected to your relationship with God. So look at verses three and four, because he says, you ask and you, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James is saying, even those, even those motives, those passions can fight and, and begin to impact my relationship with God. I could start coming to God with wrong motives. I could start coming to God like he's a vending machine and I'm just trying to, trying to get the snack that I want. And, and James says, that's not prayer. Prayer is a relationship with the living God that I'm in a surrendered relationship to. But then look at this. It's, it comes out of nowhere. He uses the word adultery. It's so interesting. It's you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's our worldliness theme. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I don't know about you, but I'm reading and I'm thinking, what does adultery have to do with conflict? James has been talking about conflict that I have in my relationships with you or in my marriage. And now suddenly he starts talking about adultery in my relationship with God. And we know he's talking, this is a spirit, he's talking about spiritual adultery. Okay, so let me say it like this. I think this will be helpful. Something in my heart has become more important to me than God is. That's spiritual adultery. I'm in a devoted relationship with my creator, but this battle has raged. Passions are fighting. One of them wins the war. And now that desire has become so important to me. It's actually more important to me now than my relationship with God. And when that happens, I will become willing to fight with someone that I love, that I'm supposed to treat well to get that thing. This is astounding. If being right becomes more important to me than God is, I will have conflict with people. If being respected or admired or recognized is more important to me than my relationship with God, I'm going to have conflict in the church, at work, and at the home. If getting my way is more important to me than God, I'm going to have conflict. If success is more important to me than God, I'm going to have conflict. You cannot solve the Friends, you cannot solve the horizontal problems until you deal first with this vertical one. And this is what James says. I love this. And this is why he ends the way he does. And it's so powerful and it's so gospel. You know, it's funny. I read commentaries that said, you know, the gospel is really missing from James. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you read four verse six? The gospel, this verse is dripping with the gospel. James says, now I've told you everything that's wrong. Here's the diagnosis, and now I'm going to give you the cure. Look what he says. I'll start in verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? He's just saying, God's, God's jealous for your spirit. He wants, he wants a, a committed relationship with you, where you choose him over all these other pleasures, all the worldliness, anything that's fighting in your heart, God's, what he's jealous for is your heart. He wants you. He created you. So it's a good kind of jealousy, but God doesn't leave you there. Look what, look what he brings to the battle. Verse six, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Just take that phrase, okay, and put it on a four by six card and put it on your bathroom mirror. You say, Lord, I'm in the battle. I feel so discouraged. James, James 4, 1 through 5, it's so discouraging. It feels helpless. This is like a battle that I cannot win. And you know what? You can't win this battle. That raging battle in your heart of passions and desires on your own, you cannot win the battle. But here's the thing, friends, Jesus brings to that battle another weapon, something so powerful. He brings grace. 
He brings grace. God is fighting for your heart and the weapon that he uses is abundant grace. So the principle is simple. I'll put it up and you can think about it. It goes like this. If the gospel is true, my only hope for this battle is God's abundant grace. Isn't that true? We know this, okay? We know this. I feel like movies often end the same way. Have you ever thought about this? All the movies we love, they end with a hopeless moment. The battle is lost. The Lord of the Rings movies, every single one of them ends like this, okay? It's like two people fighting a million orcs and they're going to die. And then at the very last minute, a hero rides in to save the day from the outside. And that's this moment. I feel discouraged. I feel despair. The battle's raging. I know I can't win the war. I can't win the war. And James says, that's, that's the diagnosis, right? The problem is in here. The world says it's your problem is out there. The gospel says your problem is in here. But then the gospel says the solution is up there, up there. And so Christ arrives. And what does he bring to your heart? He brings even more grace. No matter what, no matter how powerful, no matter how contentious, no matter how much emotion is happening in there, for some of you, it might be a lot. You might have really contentious relationships. Do you know what God wants to bring to you? Even take whatever that is, he brings more grace to that moment. And I love this. You say, you're talking about grace in a different way than I'm used to. You know, I'm used to the grace as forgiveness for sin. And it's definitely that. But did you know that the Bible actually talks about grace as a power source, a source that can transform you and give you the ability to live differently? And that's what God brings. And so I'm going to close with this. Here's my direction for you, Riverwest Church. Something I want you to do hopefully starting right now, but maybe this needs to happen once you get home. I want to take you to what James ends with. Will you look at verse seven, part A? This is your response. God's bringing the grace. All you're bringing right now in this moment is total submission. Humility and submission. I, can't, I cannot do this, God. There's only one thing I can do in this moment and it's submit to you. And so I, I wanna ask you and I, I want you to be as honest as you can. Are you completely submitted to Christ right now? And sometimes we have to, <clears throat> we have to re-up <clears throat> on that surrender, don't we? Because the world, the world distracts us and suddenly we, 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 we get off, we get off the track and then we have a moment like this moment where we read a verse submit yourself to God and we say oh, wait a minute I'm not submitted to God in fact there's a desire that's won the war for my heart and that thing right now is more important to me than my relationship with Jesus and James says God brings more grace there's grace now you in this next moment as we're worshiping as we're taking communion or maybe you go home 
today and you go into your closet and you close the door and you fall on your knees and you say, God, I need to confess something in my life became more important to me than you. And I got to turn that over because it's destroying my relationships. And you just surrender. Can we pray about that right now? Will you bow your heads with me? Father, it is so clear that your servant James was inspired by your Holy Spirit when he wrote this. He was enlightened by your Holy Spirit when he wrote this. He was carried along by you, Holy Spirit, as he wrote this. That every word, every concept, every truth is soaking in divine wisdom. So we came to this text with humility and now we leave this text with humility, knowing we have just been under the profound truth of God. And we want to submit to you, Lord, in this moment. As we take communion together, and as we worship together, and as we drive home together, we want to start with our relationship with you, Lord. Total surrender, humility. I pray, God, that in your mercy, you would flood every heart in this room with grace more grace, abundant grace, more grace than we've ever experienced. We pray for that in this moment with faith. And we know, Lord, it all begins with this meal we're about to share, the the concrete, definitive, one and only act of perfect grace. We're about to take it in. So thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.